The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. So, are you ready for Christmas? I guess I should say, what comes to mind when I say, are you ready for Christmas? For most of us, that probably means, have I gotten all the presents that I need to get? You know, my brother's wife's mom's sister, like, I just never know what she really wants. You know, and and you you have your list and you you just start stressing about it. And for some of you, you don't stress about it soon enough. And so you start stressing like Christmas Eve and you go to Rite Aid and you're like, gosh, I know this stuff there is so cute and they'll really like it. You know, but... For some of us, that's like, it's way longer, right? This, this time of, am I ready for Christmas? For some of us, that's a party, right? Whether it's preparing a party or am I invited to the party or whatever, that, like, am I ready for that? Well, I want to rearrange the way we think about that question. Are you ready for Christmas? And at the heart of that, I want you to think about these, these two questions, Are you ready for Jesus to come? And do you understand what Jesus' coming means? Are you ready for Jesus to come? And do you understand what his coming means? Because when we find God in the manger, when we read the Christmas story again, we see that no one is really ready. No one's ready for Christmas. How is that possible? That no one was ready for the long-expected, long-awaited Messiah. I want you to think about this. There's about 400 years between Malachi the prophet and John the Baptist. 400 years they had between the predictions of Jesus coming and Jesus coming. How can you not throw the best party ever in 400 years? Right, But what we know looking at our own hearts and what we know looking at history is that 400 years doesn't amplify our excitement, but it dims our expectation, right? Instead of us getting so ready, we forget. And, and we know that because it could be, you know, we... We get very ready and, and we hear the sermons, we read the scripture and, and, and then next year we're like, how did I forget all that? How did I forget what it meant for it to be God in the manger? And so today I, I simply want to talk about this. What, are we ready for Jesus to come? Are we, are we ready to meet Jesus again and see God in that manger and all that it means And I want you to think about this. When you think, am I ready for Christmas? Not just to think of all the planning and the parties and the presents, but I want you to think, man, is my heart ready? Is there room in my heart this Christmas to focus on what it is all about? And so we're going to read the Christmas story and and see how Jesus' humiliation reminds us of this. So Luke, we're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 20. It says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree 
that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house, to the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So today, I'm going to be kind of building out a context, this humiliating context for us to find God in the manger, kind of setting up what we'll look at next week with with us see the glorification of God in this. But the context is extremely humiliating. We're going to look at the people. We're going to look at the places and ultimately the position we find Jesus in as we find God in the manger. The first, and, and I, I know when you hear those things, you're probably like, oh great, it's like a history lesson. Um, but this is really fascinating. Think of the people here, three people. Well, more than that, but, but three kinds of people here. First we have Caesar Augustus, we have Mary and Joseph, and then we have the shepherds. The first person mentioned here is Caesar Augustus, and this provides a fascinating context, this kind of 30 thousand foot context, the shadow cast over the whole story is Caesar. Since the time of Julius Caesar came way before Jesus, all the emperors of Rome had been called Caesar and they were considered the king of kings and the lord of lords. That, That was Caesar, this position of absolute power. Their will was the way of the millions of people that they ruled over, and Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, Bethlehem, all these places that we're familiar to, all these places that we think of as holy places were under the rule of Caesar Augustus. He was an oppressor, right? He wasn't a benevolent ruler. He was one that his rule was terror to the people. He ruled with an iron fist. And that is the first person we're introduced to in the Christmas story. 
Caesar represented a loss of power, not a gaining of power, right? Think about this. Belief in liberation and freedom would appear like a fairy tale to anyone living under the shadow of Caesar Augustus. It's the first person that we're introduced to here. And then we have these, what would appear like minor characters when you're introduced to Caesar at the beginning, right? And that is Mary and Joseph, people who are being displaced because of the will of Caesar. People who, we find them without a home because of the will of Caesar. They are, they are not people who are comfortable. They're people who are living life on the road. They're people who are going home, but ultimately to a family that obviously isn't receiving them. A census means that they would go to the place where all their family would be gathering to pay taxes, and yet no one is taking ownership of them. That is Mary and Joseph. They are married, but they have not consummated the marriage, and so they're still called betrothed, and yet Mary is pregnant. Scandal. These are the people who make up the Christmas story. We have shepherds, right? the third people we find. And, and these are people who are not invited to parties. That's, right? If you had 400 years to plan a party, the shepherds would not make the list. These are people who are on the outskirts, not your neighbor who would bring you a casserole when you have a child. These are the people who are like, yeah, everyone else can hold the child except for the shepherds, <laughs> right? And yet these are the people God is calling to come close and worship him. They are blue-collared workers, men who are, you know, aren't believing in fairy tales, right? They're coming and they're, they're not the, the philosophers who are like, oh yeah, sure, a God would come as a baby. They're gonna be like, that's ridiculous. Those are the shepherds and yet they've come to worship. These are the people who make up the story. You have Caesar and the power of the Roman Empire. You have Mary and Joseph displaced, disowned. And you have shepherds, people on the outskirts who are being invited in closer. This is the context we find when we find Jesus, God in the manger. The second thing we... In Think of the places here represented. We have Rome, we have Bethlehem, and we have a barn, right? Rome, again, think of this shadow of the Roman Empire cast over the whole thing. Rome was made up of 50% slaves. Think about that. Half of the people that came under the authority of the Roman Empire were slaves, having no power of their own. And so this just goes to prove that, that Caesar Augustus, when they took over, it was not for the liberation of people, but it was for the oppression of people. It was for them to gain influence themselves, for Caesar to gain influence themselves. And this is a time of immense luxury and power for Rome. This was the height of the Roman Empire. And so what is Bethlehem to Rome? Nothing. And yet we work our way all the way to Bethlehem in this story. And Bethlehem is fascinating. The first time we, we hear about Bethlehem is when Jacob buries his wife, 
Rachel by the wayside. And that by the wayside place is Bethlehem. We later learn about Bethlehem because it was this small little town on the outskirts of Bethlehem where we meet Ruth, a Moabitess, who comes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem. Now, Ruth, the Moabitess, is a reject. She's an outsider. She's, the, she's someone who no one would accept. And yet there's this amazing guy named Boaz. This is a story in the Old Testament book of Ruth, right? Boaz, who welcomes her in and just doesn't show pity to her, but shows love for her and protection. This incredible love story in the Bible. They get married, and they have kids who have kids who have kids who have King David, okay? Bethlehem is known as the city of David. But Bethlehem is more a place that has been than a place that is. Now, I want you to think of Callow, okay? Some of you are like, what? Right? Callow is if you come up the hill, and then you go down the hill, and then you leave, right? And if you take a right when you're leaving, you go to Callow, okay? And Callow is not a place you do your Christmas shopping, right? (laughs) Callow is... it's like this place that you go through and you're like, this has so much potential. Well, that's Bethlehem, right? It was a place where you have pictures of like super cool cars driving on it. And like at one time there was probably a cool burger joint. But now it's callow, right? <laughs> you're like, you want a kind of a tattoo? <laughs> uh, that was probably mean. I, I don't know. Maybe they were great tattoo parlors. But you know, it's callow. And, and, but I want you to think of of Bethlehem, when you think of that, it's this place that was amazing, but it's now this place out of the way that people are just returning to to go pay taxes. And in that by the wayside place is a barn. Now, now think of all the invitations you've received to baby showers. Right? Probably has the time hostess or host you know god forbid they invite men too but people are doing that these days and <laughs> what has the world come to okay <laughs> focus with me here okay and it probably has an address Okay, barns don't have addresses because no one plans on having a baby or celebrating a baby in a barn, right? Unless probably some millennial who like had their wedding in the barn too. But, (laughs) okay, okay. See, what you miss is first gathering, I sang some opera. So uh, so second gathering, you you get all the jokes. So the barns aren't places where you host parties for babies. But this is this place, this this out-of-the-way place under the rule of the Roman Empire where in this barn because no one would have them in their home. And think about it, this is really important. They've come back to this place where family is gathered. And yet there's no place, and so they're in a barn. And this is the place where we find God in the manger. This is where we find, and let me, let me say this again, this is where we find God 
in the manger. Now, I didn't mention this in last gathering, but it's something I've thought of all week, and so I'll share it with you. I'm listening to a book right now called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's this amazing story of a, a young man who grew up Muslim and had a heart to know God and, and met Jesus through dreams, visions. And, um, but he talked about how the Muslim people honor Allah, you know, so much so that if the Quran touches the ground, they like, you know, it's like, like there's this really high esteem of God. And I think sometimes, like if you talked with a Muslim about why they don't think Jesus is God, one of the things they'll bring up is the virgin birth and Jesus' birth and his humble beginnings. How could God ever do that? And I think for some of us, the Christmas story is so, you know, it's this tradition that we're like, oh yeah, that's God in the manger. Like, but if you talk to a Muslim and they're like, never. You start hearing like, oh wow, what am I saying? That's amazing. Like, who is God exalted, lifted up, creator of heaven and earth and everything in it? Like, like, let us get help in seeing what it means for God to be in the manger. God to be born to this displaced, rejected couple in a barn because no one else wanted them. Like, that is the place God chose to be born, his humiliation. Right? We need help, right, in being shocked by that. Because this is the position he chose for himself. Get that? This is the position he chose for himself. And the position is this. The first is one of subject. He did not get born in Rome in a palace. God could have chosen that. But he, was, he chose to be born powerless. He chose to be born homeless. God chose to be born homeless. God chose to be born as a baby. And the three words that I would put to those subject, homeless, and baby is this. He chose to be born powerless. He chose to be born placeless and pathetic. And that is a hard word. But if you would look at it, if you would look at the barn with a baby and a feeding trough for animals, you'd go, that is pathetic. There's no, there's no inherent glory to that. And in that, we can say, behold your God. Behold your King. But what, what I want you to hear with that is 33 years later, someone else would say, behold your King. Pontius Pilate would say, behold your King. And what everyone would say is, Caesar is our king. We have no king but Caesar. And the same thing is happening here when we look at this and we go, behold our king in the manger. And we say, are you ready for Christmas? And yet we think of presents and parties. What we're saying is Caesar's our king. Isn't that amazing? We like to talk about God in the manger, but we, we really, I think I, I'll just say I have... Such a challenge embracing that really as God in the manger. Because I get so distracted by all these things and in that distraction, I am literally, in my mind, I'm practicing not behold my king, this powerless, pathetic, placeless baby. 
Instead of choosing that, I choose Caesar. And so we still do that. Do you get it? Instead of choosing the humiliation of it, we still grasp for power and we still grasp for position. We want to take pride in something and it's impossible for our flesh to take pride in the pathetic baby. Powerless baby, unable, vulnerable, unable to protect itself. So what does this mean for us? Again this year, we're invited to worship. We're invited to enter into a barn in Bethlehem on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. We're invited to see all the trimmings of insignificance to find the most significant moment in history today, and that is God in a manger. And so what does that mean for us? What is God, powerless, placeless, pathetic, in a manger? What does that mean for us? It means that we get this. It means that we do not need to find power in anyone else other than him. That God would humble himself to a manger means we don't need to find power in anyone else. Nothing else, all these things that we think are powerful, Rome, Caesar, wealth, influence, affluence, all those things that appear to be powerful were shamed by God in the manger. They were exposed for what they really are when we find God in the manger. We don't need to find power in anyone but him. We don't need to find our place in anyone but him. Don't need to find our place in Rome, in Bethlehem. Sometimes for some of us, some of you might come from families where you don't feel like you have a place there and your place you can find with him, this one that was displaced in a barn, in a feeding trough. We don't need to find our purpose in anything else but in him who reminds us of who we are by coming and humbling himself, making himself lower than all because Jesus came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many that in him we can find who we are. Our fight for significance is over when we find God in the manger. Our fight for pride or proving ourselves, the survival of the fittest is shamed because there's nothing less fit than a baby. Isn't that amazing? In this dog-eat-dog world where we're taught to go get something for ourselves, we find God in a manger, humiliated. That's how God chose to came. And so, so he again, he who created all the world, could lift the whole world up and carry it on his shoulders by starting as the most vulnerable of all, in the most vulnerable place. That's what God in the manger means for us. God fulfilling his own expectations, not our expectations. And so what it invites us to is to rearrange our expectations and expect a God who would bring peace by being the most vulnerable, the most humble, 
and that is our God, and that is who we worship. That is the gospel as what we get to celebrate again this Christmas. Pray with me. God, it's impossible for us by our own thinking or effort to comprehend what it meant for you to be born as a baby in a manger in a barn so we just ask for your help again this season to I just think yesterday hearing Handel's Messiah and, and all the sorrow you experienced and you, you're accepting of that. You're accepting of the suffering that it would mean. You, you accepted that so we could find peace in you. So we could find our purpose in you. Our pers- purpose could be restored 100% in you. So I, I pray by your grace, again, that we would experience immense joy over the gift that you've given us of yourself. And give us the courage to receive it and the courage to share that with others who might not see it yet, might not worship you yet. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.